Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Ren Pod. This week, I have Gavia Baker Whitelaw, who's a great writer from The Daily Dot, who also has uh, a new show on YouTube called Behind the Seams, where she breaks down costumes in movies. And, you know, we thought it'd be really cool to sit down and just chit chat about costumes, about movies, about, you know, all the nerdy stuff that we love, that you love, that everybody enjoys. Uh, there were some issues with the ether of the Internet uh, this recording and um, a bit of the conversation got cut, unfortunately, where we break down a lot of the Star Wars prequels and how we would rewrite them. But everything else got captured. Uh, we sorted it out and everything. So, uh, yeah. Here that is my conversation with Gabby Baker Whitelaw for you to enjoy. Um, I think we were talking about the Star Wars prequels. So what do we talk about next? <laughs> yes, uh, we were talking about Star Wars prequels. If something happened in the ether of the internets, then unfortunately that'll be a lost part of the episode that the audience won't get to hear. Um, sorry, uh, but yeah. Um, so we were just uh, talking about Star Wars prequels, and then. You mentioned that you were not a big gamer. I am, um, but we will. Uh, VR is very interesting, um, but we will we will slide from prequel stuff and Fast and Furious. Even though, uh, question before we move on, do you happen to have a favorite Fast and Furious movie? Ooh, that's a really tough one. Um, I do like the one where they jump from one building to another um, in Dubai because of the sheer absurdity, but kind of the way I view the Fast and Furious franchise is like a gradual acceleration in quality, because like the first one is just like a really straightforward, basically kind of lo-fi car-based ripoff of Point Break. And then by the time you get to allegedly the final movie in the franchise in a couple of years, I'm hoping they will be in space by then. So I really just respect their ability to just add more with each film. <laughs> Gabby, I have some bad news for you. They are going to space. <laughs> No, no, I'm looking forward to them going to space. I am hoping they will go to space. Absolutely rooting for it. If anything, my 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 number one thing to happen in the Fast and Furious movies is hopefully they will add vampires. I think that there should be vampires in Fast and Furious. Wow, that is okay. Okay, I am intrigued. <laughs> I mean, I just feel like it's a natural progression in terms of the ridiculousness of the movies. And in the trailer for the next one, there's this scene where Michelle Rodriguez gives her son like her giant like symbolic crucifix. And I saw this, and I was like, "Is he going to need that for like the vampires?" <laughs> <laughs> I I love that thought process, and I love it is an absurd franchise like completely absurd the things that they do with cars um and just from a physics standpoint it it blows my mind uh that someone can think it up and and actually write that and then we love it like it's crazy um and i i would love vampire stuff and i guess werewolves as well i'm a big werewolf guy more than a vampire guy uh because i find that duality of man <laughs> thing <laughs> like really interesting to me i don't know why <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah um so okay so <laughs> i have no idea how, okay i do know how to segue this into what we want to talk about vampires uh a big a big part of vampire lore um and especially dracula lore is the outfits um the way that he looks the way that the character it's it's iconic almost um and I don't know if you have uh, 
I don't know if you have any ideas or or um or opinions on the entire uh, vampire costuming situation. Do you like the uh, do you like when they stick to traditional or do you like when they do like a blade or a twilight situation where they do bring it more modern um, and change the look and uh, to fit a different narrative? Oh, this is such a good question for me. I love I love Dracula specifically. I've watched many different iterations of Dracula. And when you say traditional, like the big question is what is traditional? Because, you know, the original Dracula novel, the character kind of described in that book is pretty different from the stereotypical Dracula that we think of, who's this sort of suave looking guy who wears a cape and like a basically a tuxedo, um, which is the Bela Lugosi version from the 1930s and that kind of style was made famous by stage plays in the early 20th century but like the guy that gets described in the book is a lot kind of weirder looking he's got a mustache he's I think he might have a monobrow um he's not meant to be attractive or suave really at all and also there's like a lot of kind of Victorian sort of racism stuff going on there because it's all about like the fear of dangerous Eastern European outsiders like stealing British women and that sort of thing. Um, But like in terms of the movies, I love any film that really just goes out there and does something exciting. I'm a huge fan of the movie Bram Stoker's Dracula and the costumes in that are done by this woman named Eiko Ishioka, I believe her name is, who does very kind of outlandish outfits that are very kind of stylized, which is why that film looks so good. And you've got like, you know, Gary Oldman playing Dracula, but he's wearing quite a wide range of outfits. So you see him in this kind of fake, like sci-fi fantasy historical armor and flashbacks. And then in the present day, he's wearing these sort of fake Victorian outfits. So there's a lot going on there. Definitely. Um, definitely. Like I I I de- I haven't read Dracula in a very long time. Uh I used to I read it in high school, I think for like English class or something, and then I read it again. Um when I when I was like 20 or something, when I first got to college uh, or sophomore year, somewhere around there, um, just to because I was interested in the idea of like, well, where's like, let me delve deeper into this, because, you know, when you read something in high school, you're not really paying attention to it. You're like doing it for the grade. You're not enjoying the book. It's it's a requirement. Um, and I like you said, I was looking at like all these old hammer movie monsters and I was looking at the the way that they told the story. And I was like, I feel like I don't remember that being the story when I read the <laughs> <Yeah>. book. <laughs> there's, a lot of, there's, there's very few kind of Dracula movies that really cover the story of Dracula. Like in terms of the narrative, the Bram Stoker's Dracula by Coppola is actually the most kind of accurate to the book. Um, yeah. I don't particularly feel the need for all films to be accurate, especially when there's like a million Dracula adaptations. <laughs> but, you know. Exactly. <laughs> um yeah like it's it's very uh, and i find the the definitely like the framing of the the costuming and how it's changed over the years because i feel like it's gotten it's gotten boiled down to a very specific look that is even different from like the you know from the original like 20s uh look that it was um because now like we we think of the cape and we think of like the fangs but the bouffant i feel and it could be because i'm i'm thinking of hotel transylvania's dracula right or like now. Ha- halloween costume <laughs> halloween costume dracula <laughs> yeah like the big bouffant is kind of gone in a way like the the wild like hair is a little bit different um so i feel like even that's progressed in a way um but i feel like the the mainstays of what we think of are still there um except i guess in in certain iterations like uh like well you know obvious would be twilight blade um 
but even what we do in the shadows yeah. which i think sticks pretty close to original idea but changes just enough to be fresh almost i think i mean fundamentally they're all goths right like any good vampire movie is like about goths and the problem the problem and the success of twilight is that it's it's a vampire narrative that explicitly is like not for goths or about goths it's about like really normy people who wear kind of hoodies hoodies and jeans and like probably like you know they've got like they own justin timberlake albums in the mid-2000s like it is aggressively non-goth and that's why it brought in like a different audience that's why i don't like those movies (laughs) i mean you probably don't like them because they're not very good (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, it. the thing that I, I despise yet love about those movies, I've seen all of them. I didn't want to, but I have oh, seen I've all only, of them. I've only seen the first one, and I was like, this is fascinating <laughs> to me because I'm a huge fan of Robert Pattinson and Kristen Stewart's like post-Twilight careers, but it's very wild to watch that film and experience what Robert Pattinson's acting <laughs> was like in those days. <laughs> yes, it, it's very high school theater almost, and very college theater. Um, with the overacting done by certain characters and even just the story is very, um, I don't want to say basic. <laughs> wake quality. <laughs> oh my, yes. Um, but yeah, it's it's very, like I was, um, I don't know if you if you also had this situation, uh, but I was an emo person in, in the high schools uh, and somewhat now. I still wear all black, but I feel like I'm, I'm no longer considered an emo, I feel like. Um, <laughs> but... <laughs> I feel like I've been shunted from the group, uh, but, um, you know, in watching those movies, I was like, I, I don't like this for some reason. I should like this by all accounts. I should like this, but I can't stand it. <laughs> you know. Yeah, so. not goth enough. <laughs> yeah, like, uh, so I, I don't know if you also had that experience in um, in the youths um, in, in terms of like looking at things were you an emo let's not really i mean i was i was i was kind of a goth like i've always worn a lot of black but like i mean i think because twilight was like so popular it was obviously really polarizing so if you were a teenager around during like the height of the twilight craze either you were really into it or you like performatively hated it a lot and i was definitely one of the people who was like obviously this is crap but i hadn't read a whole book or watched a whole movie i'd like read chunks and was like this isn't very good so you know i was into harry potter oh wow yeah i um yeah the only reason i've seen them all i was uh my girlfriend was a very big fan of them so Mm -hmm. we we would watch them and i hated going to see it i thankfully i never had to go see any in theaters but like (laughs) For movie nights, it was twilight. It was going to happen. And I was like, I don't I don't want this, but I will I'll watch <laughs> it, I guess. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I this is something that I definitely get a lot of flack for um, is the fact that I still I'm going to say something that you're probably going to hate, Gabby. I still have not <laughs> seen nor have I read a single Harry Potter. I, haven't. I mean, to be honest, like at this point, you know, you've you've skipped the period where Harry Potter was really great. Um, you know, there was a point where it was a craze and now I'm sort of like, I don't feel like we should be giving money to JK Rowling anymore. I don't think it's ethical. So, you know, much as I adored Harry Potter in my teen years. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, it's oh, that's a whole can of worms. Um yeah. <laughs> that kept up with them like, oh my gosh, how the mighty have fallen. Um, but yeah, uh I just I didn't I didn't really get into it. I was a big Lord of the Rings person. Um, so I wasn't like Oh yeah. 
Love yeah, Lord when of everybody the Rings. got into like, <laughs> yeah, when everyone was like into Harry Potter, I was like, yeah, but have you seen elves? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, but Harry Potter does have a lot of um, costuming narrative elements, and it's very fantastical, and as, as does Lord of the Rings as well. Um, but I feel like. And I feel like Lord of the Rings, more than Harry Potter, it relies on the costuming and the set pieces to yeah. tell part of the story. Um, I'm not sure if you if you are uh, if you are extremely well versed in the in the costuming of of well, Lord of the Rings. The good the good news is that I actually just rewatched the first two because once again for my podcast, so I've actually watched them really recently. And I mean, I feel like anyone who knows Lord of the Rings is sort of aware of the amount of work that went into just all of the production design and the research. And I feel like Lord of the Rings is kind of the, at the absolute pinnacle of those movies, which, I mean, it kind of feels like the, the the type of movie where they go on and on about how historically accurate it is, because even though it's obviously not a real place, um, it's extraordinarily detailed and the world feels real because each of the kind of distinct social groups in the films, they've got loads of kind of real world inspiration and just like physical detail, like kind of all the stories about how, you know, they had that one guy who was making all the chainmail and lost the fingerprints in his fingers because he was making it by hand. And oh. all of the stuff with the writers of Rohan is very, very kind of closely researched into Anglo-Saxon sort of architecture and clothing and hairstyles and that sort of thing. So they've got so much going on there. And that's why those movies look incredible and feel so evocative now. Like it's just the whole package and they've aged amazingly well. And I feel like the Harry Potter movies are kind of in a different uh, category, really, because, I mean, first of all, they're not like, they're not like kind of works of art, really. They are, you know, relatively high quality, but still quite silly children's movies. And they're also definitely kind of in the British uh, mainstream literary adaptation zone. And one of the things that's kind of interesting about the way the movies sort of transferred like the visuals of the Harry Potter world from the books to the screen is that it's all very kind of tied up in Victoriana and it kind of looks like a historical drama in a lot of ways. And they're simultaneously like, look, the Wizarding World is really old fashioned, which it is because that's kind of part of the canon. And also they wanted the kids to look more relatable. So they don't have the kids wearing like robes, really. They basically just have them wearing hoodies and like normal school uniforms with a sort of robe over the top, which I think... You know, I understand why they did it, but I think it kind of takes away a key element of the story in terms of, you know, the wizarding characters wouldn't even be familiar with like what the muggle clothing would look like. And it also caused like a really big problem once they brought the Fantastic Beasts franchise in because that series is meant to be prequels, but mm. it, there's no way to make it look more historical than the original Harry Potter films, even though it's set in the 20s. So they have to just make everything look kind of like the 20s. And they've screwed up the historical period because all the stuff that takes place in the 90s and the Harry Potter movies just looks like it's, you know, the 1890s. It really does. Um, <laughs> uh, I've I've soaked in. I have seen Fantastic Beasts, so I, I think I actually have seen. I've seen one of the Harry Potters. That <laughs> you've seen the, the bad one. You've seen the real. Oh, the second Fantastic. <laughs> that is by far the worst Harry Potter movie. That is almost unwatchable and does not make sense. <laughs> it's oh. the only thing I've seen. <laughs> That's very funny. It's a very bad movie. <laughs> I, it, it made no sense to me. I think because I, I've everything I know about Harry Potter has come from osmosis, like mm. much like people who've never seen Star Wars and they know, you know, they know the entire narrative because everyone's talked about it, you know. So 
everything I, mean, I know. I honestly feel like you could you could watch like Rogue One as a standalone and be like, that's a good movie. And I can watch Fantastic Beasts too as someone who like absorbed all of Harry Potter as a 12 year old. And I was still like, what is going on? Like halfway through, they have like a, a clip on like the Titanic or something. They yes. reveal that Voldemort Snake was secretly like an Asian woman all along, which is just weird and offensive. Uh a lot of decisions I had no were made. idea what was happening. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what? There's a snake who's a person? What is happening? What here? was happening is that Warner Brothers is very keen to have new content for their theme parks. Uh, yep, that would make sense. That's it. Uh, and I guess more stuff for HBO Max. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, I was very confused because I, um, I went in and I was like, I had somebody with me who had seen all of them and who did know and was determined to get me into these into these movies like she was very determined. oh this was not a good place to start for her it was not <laughs> because i spent the entire movie wondering who people were what the what the the relationship between them because i hadn't seen the first fantastic bees so i was like okay um who is that guy and <laughs> why is he <laughs> this <laughs> i was like i understand he's a hufflepuff i get it like this is the same person <laughs> <laughs> like this is the same person that made me like take you know the, the sorting hat quizzes and all that type of stuff so i know Aww. i'm a gryffindor <laughs> i know i'm all these things but i also know i'm a ravenclaw and possibly a slytherin i've taken this thing several times <laughs> i don't know what's going on <laughs> but um you know they've they've told me about all the narrative i know about i actually i don't i don't really know too much about cyril whatever the the other chosen one that whole situation um and then we went in and they were like, yeah, you'll you'll understand, like you'll you'll get it. And I no. walked out more confused than I've ever been. <laughs> I mean, not only is that the most confusing and worst Harry Potter movie, it's also like not about the stuff in the books and none of the characters are very engaging. So you're like, oh, yeah, uh, Newt Scamander's girlfriend, who, of course, we all remember. <laughs> yes. And like from what I gathered, I I did I tried my best. I listened to podcasts about everything before we went in because I was like, I don't want to. I mean, feel this bad. is really this is really showing your like strength and loyalty as a friend. Actually, very good friend here. <laughs> yeah, like I was trying. I was like, I don't want to. I don't want her to feel bad. Like I, I want to try my best to understand. So I was like listening to podcasts that were talking about Harry Potter. I was like trying to figure out all these different narrative elements and all these types of things. I was like, okay. I got it. I listened to reviews about the first one. I was like, all right, got it. I walked in and immediately from the jump, they're like, this is uh, Grindelwald. <laughs> He's like, <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, who is this? <laughs> you know, and the entire thing confused me. And from what I did remember from like spoiler reviews of movies, of like the previous one they changed characters i guess like they changed entire personalities of characters and the way that they were because i was like that's not what the guy said happened in the last one <laughs> like and it was everything threw me off and i was so un unfathomable unfathomably flapped uh, i was not unflappable in that day it was bad <laughs> <laughs> But uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I might try again. Maybe I don't, don't know. They're doing don't. another one. No, no. <laughs> I mean, I I feel I don't know. I don't, like I feel the same way about um about Harry Potter, um and how confusing it's getting as I do. And this is a great segue. Uh, about almost about how Marvel is getting to a degree, and and how DC definitely has been for a couple of movies now. Um, mm. 
to where it's starting to be. I think Marvel is different. I think DC is definitely confusing. 100%. Marvel is extremely <laughs> controlled and DC is like completely out of, out of control, which is, I mean, it's one of those things where like both of those could end up being either bad or good, depending on what happens. Because like with the MCU, like, I mean, I, <laughs> I have seen all of the movies and was very into like actual MCU fandom sort of more around the sort of 2012 to 2014 range when it was really at its like, creative peak in terms of yes. you know fan fiction or whatever but um like that franchise is extremely kind of corporate and controlled which is why all of the movies follow a very close formula and it's extremely effective in terms of ticket sales and you know basically kind of you know not malevolently but like tricking the audience into getting very invested in characters so you will come and watch every single crossover that includes those characters regardless if the film is very good Uh, on an artistic level most of those movies are extremely uninteresting and they manage to kind of dominate the news cycle without necessarily being particularly high quality Um, obviously there are some movies in there which are really great i would say captain america the winter soldier and black panther are both fantastic especially black panther um, and Taika Waititi obviously is a very interesting director and I'm looking forward to the Eternals next year um, but it kind of depends on like how much creative control Disney is willing to allow to the filmmakers that they hire because at the moment they're kind of in this new section of like the franchise cycle where they're trying to bring in uh, new blood to make these movies and especially they're also looking for like a more diverse range of filmmakers because for years and years just like every other studio they just hired kind of the same like white men aged 30 to 50 who had either made like one indie movie or had made other films of this type but at the moment because there's such kind of a a drive to make more blockbusters they're having to bring in new people and they also you know want to be more inclusive in terms of who they're hiring um and the director of the eternals really interesting really interested to see what she does with that movie um whereas kind of over at warner brothers they've really been floundering a lot. Like I think everyone knows, even if you're a fan of the DC franchise and really love a lot of those movies, you know that it's absolute chaos there for multiple reasons, up to and including the fact that like the CEO of Warner Brothers was like in this massive sex scandal last year. Like there's all over the place kind of stuff going on. Um, So at the moment, they're kind of halfway through about three simultaneous reboots because instead of it being like, oh, here's the DC universe, which is all kind of stuck into the the Justice League franchise, You've got kind of the remnants of the Zack Snyder era who are still kind of continuing because they're more successful, like Wonder Woman. But you've also kind of got new reboots coming in from different characters. And I think what's happening with like the new Flash movie is like they're going to launch a multiverse situation, kind of like the comics. So like DC and Marvel franchises are both going to have a multiverse situation at the same time, which is definitely the right way to go in terms of, you know, expanding all the kind of stuff like adding X-Men to the MCU and stuff. But um you know, it kind of depends on whether they actually tell good stories rather than just trying to sell crossover events, which is one of the things that ended up putting me off superhero comics because, like, most crossover events aren't narratively interesting. They're just, like, a marketing campaign. <laughs> yes. Um, I'm sure I'm preaching to the choir here. <laughs> yeah, oh, oh, I completely agree with you. Um, I think the only crossover event that I truly enjoy, um, I guess, might be Secret Wars from, like, the original one. Mm. Um I, enjoy- I really like last year's X-Men, X-Men thing, Ooh. whose name I've already forgotten, but it was like a really, it was a really kind of well-written X-Men story by Jonathan Hickman, which had like a lot of kind of subsidiary materials. And I was like, this is great. And I read it and then I stopped. Yeah. Like it's the names, especially now the names are getting very forgettable. Um, mm-hmm. 
in like the crossover is like a because I think the latest one is like Deadpool kills Marvel or something. Um, I mean, sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like it's they're becoming very repetitive um, and I get it floundering comic sales and stuff like that. I, I 100 percent understand. But um, I mean, it's it's killing my drive to to enjoy the thing that you make uh, when it's like the same thing over and over again and you're losing, you know, almost credibility with uh, I mean it's it's very frustrating to kind of see the way that Marvel and DC specifically kind of fail to retain the audiences they're like supposedly looking for because you know they're very like tied into like the direct market structure where it's like oh we want people to pre-order paper comics through comic book stores and it's like sure you might want people to do that but if you want new audiences most of them are going to be like I can buy this digital comic instantly and read it on my phone which is the most efficient way and the least stressful way to buy a comic i mean obviously no one's going to comic book stores at the moment mostly but um like that sort of thing and also like the constant relaunches just make it super confusing so if you're someone who started what reading like ms marvel if her comic keeps getting rebooted you're like which issue three should i be reading which is a pretty obvious problem that many people have criticized but it's like i see that happening just constantly for the past 10 years and it's like look this should not be so confusing Exactly. And then it becomes uh, confusing as to which one is the actual main canon. You know, you have 15 different brand new brand, uh, brand new all difference and then the amazing and all these types of things. And it's like, well, which one is the actual canon one that will affect the storyline going forward? That's the one I'll read. And then they don't tell you anymore. Like, well, this one's the one you should be reading, <laughs> you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, uh, I, I quite enjoy to a degree i enjoy the chaos of dc i enjoy it mm. um i mean there's more variety right you have it's less predictable which is more interesting yes like the the stories are i'm not gonna say they're good like they're <laughs> like one <laughs> wonder woman was very good um the third act fell apart a little bit for me but i think that's more of a warner brothers issue than it was you know patty jenkins or you know or the writers issue um Aquaman, oddly enough, was good. I never thought I'd say anything having to do with Aquaman was good. Uh, but it Yeah, was. I mean, it was fun and weird and brightly colored, which I appreciate. I think it was a little too long, but you know what? It was fine. It had like sharks playing the drums or something. And it's like, that's the kind of yeah. energy that I can respect for something like Aquaman. I don't want to watch exactly. a really gritty, like, oh, he's like wrestling a nuclear submarine, like depressing Aquaman movie. <laughs> exactly. Like, you know, like the... You know, like the it's the same issue as Wonder Woman, I think, with Aquaman, with like the third act a little bit like it starts to crumble. And again, that's I think that's a studio problem. The one the one singular one that I do, I don't have much of an issue with is Shazam. And that's I think that's a really big thing about just the chaos of DC is you have Man of Steel and you have Batman v Superman, both extremely interesting costume choices in both of those we'll get to that in a minute uh <laughs> but um you have those two movies which are just these big brawling beat-em-ups between heroes and villains or heroes and heroes and then heroes and villains and then you have shazam which is just this weird family comedy movie uh where there just happens to be a villain there but he's there for comedic effect you know <laughs> yeah i didn't actually see that one but i heard it was good and it definitely does look fun yeah like it's just it's a very fun movie that has almost is no it's not depressing beyond the you know the general story behind like shazam and and dc's captain marvel um which in and of itself is like 
depressing to a degree, uh, but they take a very big like hit of comedy that is was a breath of fresh air, honestly, for me mm. watching DC movies, because this, you know, the only breath of fresh air we had was Wonder Woman up to this point. And I was like, please give me anything to breach my head above the surface of the water and <laughs> just get a quick one before you drown me again with the next Batman film. <laughs> <laughs> So those are, you know, that I quite enjoy that. And I've grown tired and weary of the overly controlled, like you said, um, nature of the MCU. I always bring up like the Ant-Man situation where you hire a very good uh, director who I completely forget. Yeah, who that movie should have been so funny and weird. And it was just a really bland film that happened to luckily star Paul Rudd. Exactly. Who brings fun wherever he is. Uh <laughs> But like you hire, I think it was Ed Trank who was supposed to do that or Edgar Wright. It was one Edgar of Wright, those. Edgar Wright. Yeah. Um, and Edgar Wright, of course, everybody knows, has a very distinct like filmmaking style, like Baby Driver and, you know, all yeah. these, you know. I like, mean, if you're into very... video essays, there's a really good video essay that I'm sure you can just Google by like Googling comedy Edgar Wright that kind of illustrates how good he is at visual comedy, which is not something you see a lot in traditional kind of American comedy movies, which are mostly like very dialogue focused. Exactly. Yeah, because everybody um, I mean, you're from the Englands, so you know about the, the Cornetto trilogy and all that type of stuff. <laughs> yes, yes. Great movies. Or at least I really yeah. like the first two. The third one's a bit depressing. It's true. <laughs> but yeah, um, so, you know, he has a very distinct style and I quite enjoy that style. I'm a big like in partaker. I don't know. I, I take in a lot of uh, British television. It's very funny to me. I quite enjoy the dry wit um, and just the Ooh, dry what's your favorite show? Um, the IT crowd, I think, is probably my favorite comedy. Mm. Uh, <laughs> um, but I do tend to watch every October. Um, I've watched Wolf Blood uh, constantly. Don't know why. Oh my god, uh, I know the showrunner of Wolf Blood. I mean, I say I know her. I like know her on Twitter. And we did one convention panel together, but she's very cool. Yeah, Debbie I quite Moon, appropriately show. named for a werewolf show. <laughs> is it, that was the first thing I noticed when I started watching the show? I was like, very appropriate name for this. <laughs> like so yeah i quite enjoy that show i watch it sometimes i'll watch it outside of october but usually that's like my october tradition um and then i'm getting into um what is it toast of london um with uh matthew barry um and then of course you know the the classics broad church doctor who like you know the you know all those types of things um so we could do an entire hour on just the <laughs> the amount of <laughs> British television that goes on in my house. It's because um, my mother works with um, she works with PBS. So they work with BBC and all that type of stuff to oh, license. Okay. Yeah, to license all the British television to America. Um, so since I was a kid, I've just grown up with like all that stuff around the house. Um, so it's, you know, it's a very interesting part of my life. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, so the what was it? Were we talking Edgar Wright? Right, yes, things. Uh, <laughs> um, the costuming—that's what my brain wanted to go to. Uh, costuming of the DC movies because I mm -hmm. find them. I don't know if you feel the same way, but I find the costuming in the DC movies are much more intriguing and much more interesting than the costuming choices in the MCU, at least for yes, me. yes. I mean, it's for the same reason, right? Because the co there are like some costumes in the MCU that I'm really into. Like the the first Captain America movie is very stylish because like they're really going for the 1940s look. 
And then um, the Thor movies have a lot of fun with their fantasy costumes. But even down to stuff like the fabric choices and kind of shoes and stuff, they're all extremely samey. Like all of those characters are meant to look like they emerge from the same brand and it creates this real cohesion when you get the Avengers characters together that you know you can tell that Hawkeye and Black Widow both got their costumes from the same like superhero factory or whatever (laughs) but um it's it's kind of it's kind of like if every single Marvel comic had the same illustrator you would not be into it like you like the fact that different artists are working on different comics and um that is what you get with the DC movies like they do look more different um, actually, one of the videos I've got coming up, I don't think it'll be out by the time this episode's out, but like I did one that's all about kind of the history of the Batsuit. And I realized there are many YouTube videos about the Batsuit because YouTube, like geek YouTube loves Batman, obviously. But I like to think that I'm bringing a new kind of professional costume criticism look at it, which is not just kind of uh, really detailed comic book knowledge, which is really not something I could even hope to compete with. I know some Batman information, but not a lot. But um. There's like, you can tell so much really interesting information from like the way Batman has like evolved over the decades in terms of the movie interpretations, because that is like the most mainstream version of the character. And it really simultaneously, it's like catering to what the kind of mainstream pop culture wants. And it's also kind of very shaped by the filmmakers. Um, So um, like the Tim Burton Batman, very dark, more sexual, you know. Sorry. Oh no! Uh, I was definitely. I was just agreeing with you. I was like, "Yeah, definitely." Okay, um, cool. <laughs> no. The, yeah, yeah. I was gonna bring up the Tim Burton Batman suit. <laughs> love, love Tim Burton Batman. He, he's literally wearing like a black rubber suit that, like, technically looks a bit like a. You know, it looks kind of like it's probably armor, but like it's not armor. It's rubber, um, and it works in the context of the movie because the context of the movie. It's simultaneously like the first really adult superhero movie, but it also is much more stylized than the superhero movies we see now because he's really playing with the fantastical elements and making it this sort of gothic operatic drama, which I love. I love that interpretation of Batman. And then like in the more modern ones, it's the point where action movies and superhero movies are one and the same, like mainstream blockbusters are all action superhero films. So it's all about kind of making him into this more plausible action hero who's got loads of like supposedly realistic armor and Zack Snyder era is like very entertaining because he is completely obsessed with like male bodies basically he's really into working out himself um he does all these films which are like either if you're watching 300 the whole thing is basically an excuse to like pan the camera all over these really impressively like muscular guys who've been working out all the time and then like that's kind of his view of Batman and Superman as well. So like Henry Cavill is like a tank. He is famously the most muscular man. And then with, you know, the Batman, you've got Ben Affleck, who is like obviously also really working out, but he's a bit more of a sort of normal middle-aged man. He's meant to be like an older Batman iteration. Um, But his suit is like terrifying because it's just all this padding and like it looks like it's got veins on it, but it's simultaneously like a bulletproof armor suit. So there's so much going on there. Zack Snyder has a unique aesthetic taste, which I do not personally agree with, but it definitely is distinctive. (laughs) It's it's very true. Um, Oftentimes, you know, oftentimes Zack Snyder especially gets called out for like the male gaze on um on wonder woman in particular but i think he does it kind of to everybody 
Yeah, um, for sure. I mean, he's 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 really into bodies in a way that can probably be unsettling for anyone. <laughs> yeah, like uh, I, I just remember in the like Batman v Superman, like that it lives in my head constantly of just the scene of Batman doing CrossFit because yes, it, yes, it made no nuts. sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also like when you compare it to the Christian Bale one, because the whole point of that Batman version is that he is this amazingly kind of efficient, well trained killing machine like he's done all this amazing training and you see like his skills and his his body kind of in action in a practical and very impressive sort of martial arts movie way and then in the Zack Snyder movies um what you were saying about the female gaze is a really good point or rather the male gaze because obviously you know his movies are not exactly feminist and he has done plenty of films where the camera work really sort of leers at women and he's very into putting like women in you know skimpy outfits or whatever but in terms of the way he portrays men and fight scenes like it is fascinating to watch those like Justice League films because he just desperately wants to just do do like slow motion images of men inflicting and experiencing agony. Like there's so many scenes where he'll just like zoom in on someone like grimacing in pain and then like slow down while they're be- while they're being like bun- like kind of you know punched in the face or like hit over the head with a toilet seat or something. And it's just like my god, this is pretty extreme for what is a supposedly a PG thirteen film. <laughs> yeah it's very true very true um and i think that's like part of um part of like they've pushed the boundaries of what pg-13 means now especially because i think um when like definitely when i was younger um you know it was it was much more buttoned up much more like tightened and now it's sort of technicalities of like oh does anyone bleed and it's like well technically no one's bleeding but batman has been beating up superman for the past 10 minutes (laughs) yeah you know and they back in the day they changed the color of the blood to make it like aliens so then it would be okay but in that movie it's it's definitely like the the absurdity of it outweighs almost um the the pure agony of watching it uh and makes it watchable somehow like you mentioned how christian bale's batman was meant to be like this efficient perfect killing machine and in the dark knight it's like one of those weird things where he tries his best not to kill and then you get to snyder's batman and of course he's you know he's dropping bodies yeah he's basically a serial killer (laughs) (laughs) and he's like this just supposed to be like this tank but I would want to see like the Bale Batman style of he's supposed to be this guy who knows every martial art, who knows how to fight in every conceivable way. And your main choice of weapon is not your hands, not batarangs, but a car. That's that's your thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like basically he's he's kind of gone too far. And what basically he should be doing is maybe making a Punisher movie. But I mean, that's kind of the thing about Batman, right? It's because everyone there's been so many different interpretations that like everyone who's like seriously into batman has very specific ideas of how the character should be and of course no one's right because like all of the different interpretations are all canon (laughs) so like there's always going to be someone who absolutely hates the latest batman um and i'm like well we should have more like batman movies where he's a dad you know because there's all these comics and cartoons where he's this sort of quite you know, funny and charming mentor figure who also clearly has emotional issues because of all his trauma. And that's not a version we've seen in live action movies. So let's have that. But um, I think we're probably going to have more murder. <laughs> probably. I, I think, um, yeah, like like you said, I would love to see Batman as a dad. I'm quite, I love in films, family shenanigans. It's mm. one of the funniest things to me. Um, And like just 
because I understand from like film school and whatever everybody says. And I think Joss Whedon said something about it. A happy couple has no drama. And that's like, that's not good storytelling. I mean, I it's think- just not true because if you've ever read a fanfic, <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> it's like every single fanfic for the Avengers is just like, why can't these characters just be happy? But um, yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's weakness of writing. And also from Joss Whedon's perspective, like that is something that is more true if you're writing serialized television, because it's difficult for to have like a long-term tv show where you do have a happy couple who's just happy for like 60 episodes but if you're watching a movie like you can have a movie where there is a happy couple or a happy family and they are dealing with exterior problems and actually that's what lord of the rings is about like there is very little interpersonal conflict caused by the main characters in lord of the rings it's all caused by exterior problems and it's incredibly emotionally compelling and heartwarming Exactly. Like I um I completely agree with you. That's that's literally what I was gonna say, essentially. Like, um your your conflict doesn't have to come from within, you know, the will they won't they, because that's the basic thing that everyone goes for. It's like, well, they clearly like each other, but they're not gonna say anything. Like having two people just be happy and then having your conflict come from outside sources or neighbors or or you know, or even just uh, you know, the world around them, it it opens up so many opportunities to not just reinforce an idea that it's okay to be happy because I think that's a part of like media and like not necessarily romance all the time, but like just movies in general, like it Mm -hmm. reinforces this idea that in order to be the main character or the protagonist in your story, you have to have some sort of suffering. Um, And we, I mean, I think that really really, is, yeah, that's really interesting for Batman because I think Batman, you know, is and should be depressed. Like, that is kind of the point of Batman is that he is grieving and he's dealt with his grief really badly and he feels guilty and he's driven by all of those feelings. Like, obviously, that is the, the concept of Batman. But if you have a movie where he is kind of mentoring children, And he's got that sort of, you know, you've got the more comedic and lighter influence. You can kind of have a story where he still has those same motivations, but part of the struggle is he's struggling to be happy. Whereas all of the Batman movies currently are kind of, there's no attempt for him to be happy because it's all about him trying to be more miserable and using that misery as fuel. And then the narrative is kind of portraying that as a really cool and like manly thing to do. Um, Which is just like, sure, there's like a million movies like that already. Thank you. Exactly. Yeah, like 100%. Um, Because yeah, I somehow didn't even say anything about like Batman as a dad. Uh, I got into like happiness. Um, Yeah, because like the the last time I think in a movie, well, or TV show, I guess the TV show would be the original 1960s Batman show where he was kind of a a dad-esque, not counting, you know, Batman Beyond and all this type of stuff. But as far as movies go, I think the last time that we really saw Batman as even part of like a father figure or a mentor was in Batman and Robin with yeah. uh, George Clooney's Batman, uh, <laughs> which I believe we we might share a, a fondness for uh, that movie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is amusing. And I feel like a lot of the dislike of it is kind of people perhaps not understanding that everything that happens in that movie is intentional. They did not accidentally make a movie that is full of like ridiculous slapstick humor and people wearing neon costumes. Like that was on purpose. It is a comedy. <laughs> exactly. Like I, and I think people oftentimes forget that, that Batman can be funny. I think that's like what gave rise, like what you were saying, we're, we're constantly seeing this ever since the Tim Burton Batman, cause Tim Burton, another director with a very distinct style and 
way of writing and filmmaking and directing. I mean, who is also funny. Kind of like he makes depressing. a lot of dark comedies. Yeah. And, and people oftentimes like focus on like the dark aspects of it as opposed to like how funny those things can be. Um, like even Sweeney Todd, which is one of my favorite musicals and also very good uh, film with Jack Black and or not Jack Black. Uh, what's Johnny Depp? I don't know why I'm thinking about Jack Black today uh, and Helena Bonham Carter. It's it's still funny in its own way, just the way that the characters interact and the things that they say and the way that they say it. It's still humorous, even though it's meant to be this like gritty, horrible, like, you know, you're eating people in pies situation, you know, <laughs> I mean, my favorite TV show is Hannibal, which is absolutely just about cannibalism and is often very funny. So, you know, yes, (laughs) I appreciate that you love this show. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) I love it. Huge fan of Hannibal. Oh, like I, 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 I was watching it with a group of people and they wanted to stop watching it. And I asked them why, and they said, well, it's a bit much for us. I mean, that's fair. It's That's absolutely fair. That's an extremely good reason not to watch, because if you've started Hannibal and you don't like it very much, it's not going to get any easier. <laughs> yes. like, And we were like two seasons in. Like, they had seen the first season. Like, you know, at that point, you're going to, you might as well ride the wave. You'll get, it'll get better at some point. Not really, but... <laughs> I think your brain just becomes desensitized to it. Like there was a point where I had to take a break, definitely, because I kept looking at the food and my brain would ignore the fact that it was supposed to be people because it just (laughs) looks so delicious. I mean, that is the magic of the food design. Have you ever seen um, the food designer of that show actually has a blog where she kind of explained all of the thoughts behind it. She also did like a recipe book. It's great. Oh, I need to check this out. Her name is Janice Poon and she has, it's just, I mean, if you just Google like Hannibal food blog, it's great. And she has all the kind of sketches and stuff. Obviously the showrunner, Brian Fuller is very into all the visual stuff. So he had a lot of direct input into sort of being like, here's where we're going to put this like symbolic skeleton of a lamb, you know? (laughs) Yes. Like, oh my gosh, that show. I love the visuals of it. It was, it helped me come back from the disappointment that was Dexter and I think it, it gave me all the things <laughs> that I wanted from Dexter that I didn't get. <laughs> it, it really is. It really is the polar opposite of Dexter. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Just spiritually. Uh, yeah. You know, like I, I, you know, I was a big fan of, of the whole Dexter situation until about season six. And then it's like having my heart ripped out. Um, and then of course Hannibal came along and I was like, I need another, not necessarily serial killer show, but I need another like super cerebral, like two characters are almost like trying to manipulate and trying to play each other, but they can't help. But like, weird, like it's a weird attraction between Hannibal and, uh, and Will Graham. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's, that is also a vampire romance. It's a vampire. Yes. (laughs) Like definitely like there's, there's something going on there that Hannibal is too much of a coward to explore. Uh, But like it gave me the thing that I was really intrigued about, which like in the earlier seasons of Dexter between Dexter and Dokes, where it's somebody that's clearly on to you and clearly is trying to trap you, but you're also trying to trap them. And this this dance that happens between the two characters that really drives the narrative forward and drives my interest forward. Like that's my that was my issue with like a lot of shows, including like Lost and Heroes towards the end. Like I lost that feel of uh of characters interacting in a a specific like psychological way you know 
Yeah. Like, I don't know if that makes sense. <laughs> no, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Hannibal works because, I mean, for many reasons, mostly to do with it's just very good, but like the emotional intensity just keeps it going all the way through. Yes. Like it definitely propels things forward. And it even like to a certain degree, like you understand Will's point of view. And to to some degree, I understand Hannibal's point of view, but like you're not meant to like him. And that's the upside of it is he's just very charismatic creature almost because he's barely a person uh but he's he draws you into his, his sphere and his orbit and keeps you on this merry-go-round and you can feel that sort of like outsider nature of will and how easy it is for him to be drawn in to uh hannibal's nonsense <laughs> yeah i mean it's it's it works because like unlike most crime dramas there's no like there's no attempt to try and make it like a moralizing thing like, it would be completely absurd to be like, oh, I'm watching Hannibal with, like, motivated by my moral belief that Hannibal should go to da- go to jail, because, like, that is not how the narrative functions at all. <laughs> like, you're kind of rooting for him exactly. while also <laughs> recognizing that he is the most despicable person ever. <laughs> yes, like, you, you get it, and you're like, I, I know, like, I kind of understand why you're doing this, but it's, it's bad, but I get it. <laughs> you know, um, but yeah, like, it's... That narrative structure, I think, and that kind of idea, I think, is what Matt Reeves, I believe, is doing the next one. I think that's what he and Robert Pattinson might be going for with the next Batman. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I've actually not seen Matt Reeves' other movies. Like, I've heard um, that the Planet of the Apes movies are really good, but I just kind of never got around to seeing them. But I love Robert Pattinson, and I kind of have a lot of trust that he is only going to take a role like this if it is relatively weird. Because he loves to do weird movies and, like, quite psychologically aggressive roles um so i'm i'm relatively optimistic in that regard yes yeah as am i i've come around on the uh on the idea but i wasn't sold on it initially not because of like robert pattinson i'm quite a like like you said i'm quite a fan of his post twilight career like the way that his career has gone has been completely opposite of what everyone thought it would be um because it seemed like he was going to be this like heartthrob of hollywood and then he just turned out to not be that at all he is just absolutely (laughs) he hates he hates that he like spent years not washing his hair in the hopes that people would find him less attractive which obviously did not work but um it's just kind of funny because like he and Kristen Stewart were apparently just watching like depressing indie movies together while they were making those movies and then instantly were like we're going to use our fame to make low budget psychological dramas for the next 10 years exactly and it's so it's so fun like I love it um so I wasn't sold initially because I I felt like it was it was more like a DC universe situation where I was like you're making too many Batman there's too many Batman movies I don't know what's happening why do you keep making them and then they were like okay Robert Pattinson's doing it I was like Okay, maybe, maybe. We're yeah, that like was that was basically me too. <laughs> yeah, I was like, maybe we're getting like a Batman Beyond thing, like that sort of feel, because I love Terry McGinnis. Maybe we're gonna get something like that, and then like Matt Reeves, and I was like, well, I've never seen the, any of his stuff, but okay, let's find it. And then they were like, yeah, it's gonna be like a psychological thing, like a like a dark, deep seated thing. I was like, I'm in. <laughs> You've sold me. You can stop trying. <laughs> you know, like. So I'm very uh, I'm very intrigued by that. I'm very intrigued to see where they go with that. Um, but speaking of um, armor plating, because Batman has armor plating, I'm 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 reaching for segues mm-hmm. here to try and get us places where <laughs> we want to go. No, no, I'm waiting to see where the segue goes. I'm excited. <laughs> so speaking of armor plating that Batman has and these big blockbuster films, there is an a vastly underrated, if you ask me, um, and I'm sure plenty of other people. 
uh, movie that the both of us do enjoy called Pacific Rim uh, (laughs) that has some of the most interesting uh, and I'm sure you'll agree uh, costume design and narrative structure and how those two play into each other um, is extremely amazing. You do have a video about it coming out, so I don't want you to spoil too much about it. Uh, but if you, whatever you want to share. Uh, well, I'm, I'm happy to talk about it. And hopefully, you know, people can check out the video with the actual uh, visual illustrations instead of racking their brains for what everyone looks like in Pacific Rim. But um, <laughs> I am a big Guillermo del Toro fan. I've seen all of his films. They're all tremendous. Um, and he's had an interesting time in terms of his balance between like indie movies and blockbuster films um, because he is clearly a very desirable person to make a blockbuster movie because he can do it. Like there's a lot of people who get hired because no one else wants to make a blockbuster and they just don't make a very interesting film. He is a genuine artist who also has the experience and capability to make a blockbuster, but often because his ideas are like less formulaic than one usually expects, his you know, his movie ideas fall through at studios or he gets like hamstrung by studio executives. With Pacific Rim, like the movie didn't really do as well as it should have done at the box office, but like it's a very accessible concept. It's like there's giant robots fighting giant Godzilla style monsters (laughs) and it's very fun and it's got an interesting kind of diverse ensemble cast and the story is all about like the power of friendship because you've got that kind of, you know, anime like mecha robot idea where you've got to drive the robot around, but you can only do it with two pilots who are like psychically linked. Beautiful concept, very emotional. But in terms of like the visual style, Del Toro is super interested in production design and costumes. And a lot of his creative process actually begins with him doing his own kind of sketches in a notebook. Like he has all these notebooks where he, you know, designs his ideas for like the monsters in Pan's Labyrinth and some of the characters from Pacific Rim. So you have this visual style, which combines, you know, monster movie monsters by amazing production designers to make them look really cool and gross and fit in with the sort of Godzilla kaiju uh, legacy of films. You've also got robots that are kind of anime influenced and thankfully kind of look a bit distinct from the rather poorly designed uh, movies from the Transform- the Transformers robots, which are just like a bit too busy. Uh, they're not good. They don't look good. Uh, <laughs> but then in terms of costume design, yeah, I know, right? It's like they're not, they're, those movies don't look good. Um, but in terms of costume design, the thing that is really fantastic about Pacific Rim and just Guillermo del Toro's films in general is that he really wants every individual character to stand out and not just the protagonists. And that's basically the opposite of what you see for like an Avengers movie where, you know, the superheroes have their costumes and characters do kind of wear different outfits, obviously, but their personality very rarely shines through and they look very kind of generic. You know, there's a lot of what plain white t-shirts in those movies. Yeah. And in Pacific Rim, you know, you've got like people who are you know, the Jaeger pilots, the robot pilots, who are maybe like in a couple of scenes in the background because they're not in the main team. But you remember them instantly because, you know, they've got this Russian couple who have this amazing sort of um, like 1950s sort of cosmonaut outfits and like massive hair and all these piercings and stuff. And they just look so (laughs) cool, so memorable. Um, Yes. And they've got like their bomber jackets for the different teams. And then the individual characters in the main kind of secondary cast, you know, you've got these two mad scientist characters who 
very straightforward types of roles. You see loads of movies that have just one or two mad scientists whose job is to deliver exposition and say something nerdy where then the jock characters like say it in English and then they explain it in like camera terms, you know. Um, yeah. And in Pacific Rim, <laughs> you've got the one who's like the cool one who's played by Charlie Day from Always Sunny in Philadelphia and he's got like a leather jacket and tattoos, but he's not actually cool because he's a dweeb. He just thinks he's cool. And then his partner is the one who's just like ridiculously nerdy and has glasses and like he's dressed in this outfit that looks like a kind of 90 year old man in the year 1930 who's like lecturing at Oxford but it takes place in the future you know and just by looking at pictures of those two characters you can instantly tell what their personalities are and remember them without having to be like oh there's some scientists we saw in a scene 15 minutes ago and so every one of the characters in the cast has that kind of level of detail and the fact that it looks really varied also kind of plays into like the central themes of the movie, which is the idea that people from different backgrounds with different emotional reactions to things and different ways of solving problems can work together to deal with a common cause. And the common cause is obviously fighting these aliens, which are kind of a metaphor for climate change. And it's just so smart to have that idea because he was intentionally, um, Guillermo del Toro was like intentionally pushing back against the American blockbuster trend of making these movies in a very militaristic way where the main characters are either literally wearing a military military uniform or they're wearing very uniform bland clothes that aren't very distinct and he's like no these characters know what they want to look like they have distinct personalities and they're working together despite that and the only character in the main cast who does wear a really obvious uniform is stacker pentecost idris elba's character who's the military commander and the whole point is that that costuming choice represents his personality because he is really sort of upright and rule abiding and he is the commander and he has to kind of keep the whole team together. But he's also really concerned about his own health because he's terminally ill. So he's trying to hide that behind like a really restrictive exterior. So there's just so much detail going on there in terms of visual choices in a film, which is basically just a very silly blockbuster about people like fighting giant aliens. Yeah. Um, is everything you just said is essentially like it's it's the lesson that I think almost every director and writer now needs to learn because I think it's there's a very negative lesson that's been like beat into people in film school for a very long time um, about costuming and about narrative and about the way that uh, the way that they make a film that it's very by numbers you know it's kind of like the Michael Bay effect. Right. Which you were mentioning Transformers where it's like he comes in under budget and ahead of time. And there's these multitude of characters that are extremely forgettable. Um, And even his main characters oftentimes are extremely forgettable. Like, I don't remember a single thing that really stands out too much about Sam Witwicky besides the fact that it's uh, he's just really angry all the time. (laughs) He's just really angry. (laughs) Exactly. But there's no like visual, you know, Thing they that, all like, just wear t-shirts exactly like it's it's the uh like you said it's the very militaristic way and i think that's done partially to make it okay to use cannon fodder almost right where there's these very forgettable people so you can just throw them at a problem and it's the red shirt dilemma from star trek right where you don't have a name you don't have like any real visual thing that'll make you stand out in someone's mind so you're perfectly fine as being cannon fodder but you get the drawbacks of that of you don't have a very compelling narrative if you don't feel the pain 
of that character being lost. Um, Cause in uh, like in Pacific Rim where you have those flashbacks uh, with, I forget her name, but our, our female lead. Oh, uh, Makumori. Yeah. Yes. Makumori where we see her flashbacks and it's, everything's very stylized and even her outfit is very like, it's striking in your head with the shoes that get left behind and the, and the little bunny and all those types of things. And the way that the robots are crashing through her, her city you know, you see Stacker come down and, and he's framed in this very like Messiah esque situation. And his outfit is like kind of military, like power armor, but still himself before he goes into this very buttoned up like military man guys as he's like raising her as we see him in the in the present day. Like everything kind of pinpoints that you will always remember her or always remember that situation in your head while you're watching the film. And it ties you and her story together so that you're thinking about it when you see all of her actions or all of her choices and decisions, you understand what's going on. But in, you know, in the MCU or in a Transformers or in a generalized blockbuster, um, you see this a lot with villains, especially where they're forgettable. There's the reason why everyone loves the Joker is because it's a very distinct look. It's an extremely distinct look. It's an extremely distinct style that you can't copy. Um, But you get to and the MCU does this a lot more than DC does. Unfortunately, you get to things like Loki, where it's just a guy in a black suit, you know, or I don't even remember the other uh, bad guys from the Avengers. Oh, but right Loki now. has so much panache. <laughs> he does. His his personality. Yeah, most shines MCU through. villains are pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, like his personality shines through, and that's kind of what makes him like the most beloved uh, character as a villain in the MCU is because of just and those few times where you kind of get this very flamboyant Asgardian outfits with the big horns, and you know that stands out. <laughs> But I was so like... dispirited by uh, Maz Mikkelsen getting a role in Doctor Strange, which is like such a mediocre film. And it's like he is playing a, a supervillain in like a wizard movie and he is just playing the most boring, like generic villain. And I'm like, you've got Maz Mikkelsen. <laughs> this should <Yes>. be better. <laughs> exactly. He's just dressed in a, the same robes as everyone yeah, else. Like a cape or whatever. <laughs> like, come on. Come on, man. Yeah. <laughs> like you have to give your your bad guys a very distinct style that allows the audience to even if they relate to them to a certain degree because that's almost what it is um that allows them to understand the choice and understand like okay this person is wacky because that is like part of the joker's thing is he dresses like a clown because he's unhinged you know and his outfits are tattered sometimes and all these types of very intentional choices to make him seem more unhinged you know so having like a very buttoned up um who's the the worst one uh what was the the bad guy uh red skull or something who's just a guy but he has a red skull <laughs> i mean i think this speaks to like just the the wider um kind of concept of like what makes an engaging story which is kind of the the main divide between most blockbusters and most successful independent dramas is that a good story is specific and no matter where it is set if it feels detailed and authentic then people will be drawn to it even if it bears no resemblance to their life whereas the logic behind a really bland blockbuster is completely governed um, by economic fear. So the the studio doesn't want to make any kind of risky choices, which can be everything from having a really distinct aesthetic 
to casting anyone other than a 35-year-old white man in the lead role, because that's what they perceive as the most relatable and unrisky type of protagonist for what they think is their target audience. And in reality, when you look at movies which, you know, manage to break through in terms of real success without that kind of big studio financial backing in terms of marketing, you know, you end up with movies like Moonlight. And it's like most people who watch Moonlight are not going to be like, this reflects my direct life. But it's a really successful film because it's authentic and it's an amazing piece of art and it tells a meaningful story. And like, it's not like most people are going to watch Batman and be like, that's relatable because Batman is fundamentally unrelatable. But (laughs) most of the creative choices are still being made by that like irrational rationale. Yeah, I I think you you definitely hit the nail on the head because you get you have certain things that kind of break through this mold, like you said, like with Moonlight which I still have gotten around to see. I really need to watch that. It's in my, I own the movie. I just haven't put it in yet. <laughs> like, um, but you, you get things like that. You get things like Get Out or Us where- Or like Parasite. Us. Like, I mean, Par- yes. Parasite was like a huge hit. And it's like, obviously Bong Joon-ho is a tremendously successful director and has had breakthrough movies with Western actors in the West before. But even so, the popularity of that movie- mm-hmm is like based on the fact that it's like an amazing, very specific story. And it bears absolutely no resemblance to the types of movies that are like perceived as mainstream hits. Exactly. Yeah. And um, I I noticed that a lot with like a lot of um, Korean shows and movies like uh, Train to Busan has a very distinctive um, style and aesthetic to it because, you know, of course, it's on a train and it's it's zombies on a train. It's a it's a very straightforward story but all the characters have a have a very distinct look all the um everyone kind of has their own distinct dialogue as well to a degree so everyone stands out everything is very packaged very nicely and neatly um and i've noticed that with a lot of a lot of korean um shows as well where the aesthetic is for every show is extremely that aesthetic i don't know if that makes sense but it's like they take it to the 11 on whatever aesthetic they've chosen. If they've chosen a, a supernatural drama, there will be drama and there is going to be so much things that look supernatural that would just normally be mundane, you know? <laughs> mm. And it's I think it adds to building out the world and kind of fleshing out that that feel of setting, um, which, you know, which is oftentimes forgotten. Uh, by the regular audience but for people like you and me it's extremely important in in noticing and enjoying a film i don't know if you also feel that sometimes when you're like watching a film and the setting is off if that'll take you out of it yeah for sure i mean i'm trying to think because i feel like i recently saw a movie where just like i mean it was probably hillbilly elegy because i recently reviewed hillbilly elegy and was just like oh it's just like this is the pits you know (laughs) it must have been that but like one does occasionally see a film where like they've just really half-assed all of the kind of production design and it just feels very hollow exactly exactly like it's um it's that sort of that sort of feel like uh i don't I, i was saying something about us or whatever like it's very it was very distinct aesthetic. Like you have people in red jumpsuits taking over the world and is the, the golden scissors and all this type of stuff. Like it's very distinct horror movie esque look, but there it, it ties together 
everything that the narrative is looking for, right? Like uh, cutting ties with like a quote unquote darker self or, or whatever the um, allegory might be for one thing or cutting ties with your past and those things coming back to haunt you. And that's, you know, the scissors and all that type of stuff. And it's played out not only narratively and through dialogue, but also through the setting of, you know, the lake house being kind of the seventies look to it. And the, you know, all the cars are a bit old timey, you know, until you get to the suburban areas in the city. And then, you know, then all of a sudden you have these modern cars and then you have the visual element of the the costumes and the people and the smiles that they have. And this, this creepy vibe is given to you from the moment that the movie starts to the moment it ends, you know? Yeah. So, you know, like it's it's that sort of um, I think that's oftentimes forgotten in modern era blockbusters almost. And, you know, you go looking for it in in indie movies, which is, you know, it's great. It's wonderful. Um, but I think I think it's time. I think it's time that we get blockbusters back on board with uh, <laughs> with making a visual style. Um, I want Labyrinth, but in a blockbuster <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> you know um i'm not sure um i'm sure you've probably seen labyrinth i think everybody's seen Labyrinth. oh of yes i have naturally seen the classic that is labyrinth <laughs> okay wonderful um so and yeah of course you, you love costume design um that has some of the wackiest costume design in the world and i, I of course wanted to ask your opinion of it before we got into like what ifs and all that type of stuff and recommendations and whatever um so of course big fan of labyrinth um any particular favorite uh costume in there are you are you a jareth person are you a, a hoggle person i'm a hoggle man <laughs> I, I well i'm a big david Bowie fan so like it's definitely jareth but like i love um just like sarah's ridiculously overblown ball gown that she wears it's sort of this like sparkly oh, yes. white like <laughs> poofy sleeves thing like it's not something i would personally wear but like it's an amazing just like the perfect dream dress for like a teenage fantasy girl <laughs> just very well chosen is very true um very true it's very uh i don't want to say like ramona almost um i mean ramona it's very 80s yeah <laughs> um but yeah i mean i'm also a big very big david bowie fan uh i i still love uh ziggy stardust and the spiders of mars i break it open every now and then um but it's jareth always stood out to me and i think he's he's meant to do that with the outlandish costumes and the the whole like um the whole like escher scene and situations like that and the hair and the eyes and all that he's meant to kind of stand out but that's why i always say i'm a hoggle person because hoggle is he's meant to stand out in grotesqueness but not necessarily in in any meaningful way to the narrative almost like visually um he's kind of mm. meant to blend into the background uh but i always find that that to me anyway it caused him to stand out more the fact that they always dressed him in kind of these like dull tones and he's always kind of in this area that kind of blends his clothes a little bit so he kind of is meant to disappear and be this kind of helper who's kind of a spy a little bit but to me it always stood out a little bit more and that's why i was always a big fan of hoggle i don't know if you if you noticed that <laughs> i did not but i love that hoggle has stands i'm very happy to hear this and i'm sure so will the jim henson company <laughs> yes uh big still love it want a sequel i think they're doing a sequel actually <laughs> Ugh. 
I, I retract that statement. I don't want a sequel. I thought about it. Don't want it. Um, <laughs> so um, in uh, towards the end of the show, because I know it's uh, it's about six or so your your time. Um, so I don't want to take up too much of your time. Um, but towards the end of the show, uh, I always usually ask people what they're recommending to people and uh, for the week of what they're watching or listening to. And then I always ask about two what ifs. So which do you want to do first? Do you want to do you want to recommend stuff to people first? Or do you want a what if question? <laughs> uh, OK, recommend. What do I recommend? OK, give me the what ifs and I'll think of uh, the recommendations. <laughs> okay um so uh the what ifs for this week we have one uh since we're talking about costume design since we're talking about blockbusters if you were to be magically or unmagically scientifically whichever one you want uh put into a major blockbuster film that world uh any everything that comes with it you're not the protagonist you are a side character everything that comes with it, all the dangers and everything, um, which one would you pick to live in? Star Wars. Wow, okay. I feel like Star Wars... <laughs> so I I feel like Star Wars is effectively like the real world in that most people are living under an impressive regime, but they're not physically on the front lines of a revolution or a war, which is effect effectively what we're kind of living through at the moment. Um, so like probably I'd just be like a peasant... Or like a restaurant owner or something in the world of Star Wars. I guess I'm just being like won over by how much I love Star Wars. Maybe that's quite depressing and I should go for one that's more like lighthearted and fun. Uh, Lord of the Rings, you'd probably just be like hanging around in Hobbiton, like <laughs> making marmalade all day. So maybe it's actually Lord of the Rings. <laughs> <laughs> See, I, I always, whenever I ask this question um, in regular life and even sometimes on the podcast, people and myself included i've i've done this they try and find a way to like finagle themselves into like <laughs> as close to the main character narrative as oh, possible oh no i mean i would not <laughs> want to be close to a protagonist narrative i don't want to be like fighting <laughs> like you know i would definitely be like making marmalade in hobbiton um yeah <laughs> i mean i mean it's it's i think it's the the temptation of adventure i think that's what it is and i know listen <laughs> as i as i get more into to cooking recently i'm i'm slowly shifting to your side of i and of course as the world gets crazier and crazier every day i, I just all i want is to be able to be on an island somewhere and just surf and go to sleep like that's quickly becoming what i want oh so, so what you're saying is you want to live in the world of avatar james cavern's avatar Yes, pretty much. Like, just <laughs> leave me alone and let me go to bed, and I'll wake up and ride a pterodactyl or something. I don't know. Um, yeah, I've usually always picked uh, something wild like the Spider-Man universe, um, not the one attached to the MCU. I don't want anything to do with Iron Man or anything. I mean, the best. idea of wanting to live in the MCU is so nuts because, like, it's basically the real world. You're still got your same crappy job, but also there's like a much higher chance that you're about to get nuked by Thanos or something. Exactly. So I would never want to be like, although the whole like John Hughes, like aesthetic of uh, of the 
more recent Spider-Man movies is intriguing. I love The Breakfast Club and, and Weird Science and all those John Hughes movies. I don't want anything to do with Iron Man. I don't want anything to do because I, I live in New York um, for a very long time. I grew up in New York. So I would definitely like my job would be blown up or like my school would be ransacked by scrolls or something. It's like, do I, I want to live in a it. world where Elon Musk has has access to like an interdimensional portal? No. <laughs> Exactly. You know, like it, it would be horrible. So I always go like original Spider-Man movies at most Amazing Spider-Man because more than likely if it's Amazing Spider-Man, the worst I get is I get turned into a lizard, which I can live with. I'm fine with that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's no more taxes. I'm not paying taxes as a lizard, man. It's fine. Uh, but original Spider-Man is just like you're just in New York. Like it's just regular life. I'm just there. Maybe I see Peter Parker at high school unfortunately i don't want to but maybe i do and then you know a guy in an octopus suit shows up that's just enough adventure and just enough whimsy for me to enjoy it but i'm never in any actual danger you know yeah solid like um so yeah that's uh that's the main what if for this week um no one else has submitted one uh so thank you jack from twitter uh for submitting that uh that what if for this week um so the recommendations for this week, Gavia, Baker Whitelaw, what are you recommending to the people to listen to, read, watch? What are you what are you giving them? <laughs> my recommendation is a comic. It is my favorite comic. It is by the writer and artist cartoonist Carla Speed McNeil. Her middle name is Speed. <laughs> and it's called Finder. It's it's kind of, it's a cult hit. It's been around for like 20 years and it's still going. And she has made this like incredible universe. It is a sci-fi fantasy comic whose main character is, uh, he has like, he does sort of odd jobs, but he also is kind of, has like a slightly shamanic role. Um, but it takes place primarily in this sort of bubble city in a somewhat futuristic world which also has sort of different fantasy social groups within the city and it's kind of like a slice of life comic but it just has incredible incredible world building and really interesting characters um so finder by carla speed mcneil is my recommendation uh, i mean i i've not read that but i will definitely is it, it is with, it um, has a real cult following because it's publisher? it's never been published published by like a really major publisher i think parts of it were published mm. by dark horse and because she's been ah. doing it for so long it kind of built up this audience over like 20 years okay so it's like a, it's like a saga um yeah. situation yeah, yeah okay. and you can yeah. buy like you can buy like one big volume quite easily which is just like volume one and gives you like an amazing idea there's like two main volumes and they're very good Oh, well, I definitely want to check this out. I love slice of life stuff. Um, if I, I, I watch anime sometimes, um, I think I have cycles of like I'm into it and then I'm not into it because uh, mm -hmm. it gets too wild for me. Um, but I, you know, when I do watch them uh, half the time, I'm watching like a slice of life thing or I love a good slice of life situation. It's great. <laughs> you know, um, just to kind of like live somebody else's day to day for like a little bit. Cause then you, you know, you open Twitter and you're like, I hate this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, for me, um, I would recommend, uh, number one, going to listen to, uh, Gavia's podcast. Definitely, uh, go listen to that and watch between the seams on the YouTubes. Uh, that would be my, I'm uh, sorry, behind, behind the scenes. Very interesting. 
behind the scenes. Sorry, I my brain is. I was looking at my phone to try and find stuff. <laughs> like it's recommend. fair. You've been we've been recording like, for like an hour and a half. <laughs> yeah, like I was like looking to try and find like what song or something that I wanted to recommend to somebody. Um, but yeah, so definitely look at uh, behind the scenes uh, on the YouTube's uh, and enjoy that because uh, Gabby, you do really uh, break down um mad max especially i think that's my favorite one that i have seen uh so far um not to choose favorites but that one is my favorite one um that where yeah the way that you break it down is so intriguing and so interesting um and it has spurred me to want to go back and watch mad max fury road uh because i haven't seen that since it came out in theaters uh so that is definitely going to happen again um <laughs> uh but uh outside of um going to check out all of gavia stuff going i don't know watch uh auntie donna's big old house of fun if you enjoy comedy uh because that was a very it's just got released on netflix it's pretty funny uh if you enjoy a bit more like a raunchier humor um it's it was i got i I gave out a quite a few chuckles uh whilst watching it and it has a lot of fun uh celebrity guest stars on it um and it's by a very funny uh, Australian comedy trio, uh, Auntie Donna. Um, so, yeah, uh, we have reached the end of the show, unfortunately. So, Gavia, uh, where can the people find you on the interwebs? And stuff well, you, you can do? find my YouTube channel at Behind the Seams. You can find my podcast, which is Overinvested Podcast by Googling it or going to overinvestedpodcast.com. And you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. Follow uh, me on the Twitter at Morgan L. Brooks, on the Instagram at Morgan L. underscore Brooks. I never use it, but it's there if you want to see my face. Um, and you can follow my video game stuff uh, for the Twitch and the YouTube and the TikTok at Hidden Time Lord. So H-I-D-D-E-N-T-I-M-E-L-O-R-D. Yes, that's spelled correctly. Um, and then you can send mail and whatever else you want, you know, all that type of stuff to the show. Uh, what ifs, any questions, all those things. Um, to the show's email, uh, renpodnetwork at gmail.com, um, or just DM me or tweet it at me using the hashtag renpod, R-E-N-P-O-D. Um, but it's been, it's been an absolute blast, uh, recording with you. It's been, um, super fun. Uh, and I really enjoy your takes on, uh, on movies. (laughs) Well, thanks for inviting me on. It's been great. Yeah, it's, it's been awesome. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, audience, so much for listening and being part of this community. I appreciate uh, each and every single one of you. Um, so yeah, until next time, uh, thank you and good night or good day. I don't know what time you're listening to this. That's, that's up to you. <laughs> but bye. <laughs>